Welcome to the Lesbian Review Podcast. I'm Sheena and I'm joined today by Ruth Sternglotz. Ruth is an editor of LGBT fiction for Bold Strokes Books. She's also an academic focused on medieval England, history of drama, lesbian romance, and she's a lawyer focused on IP, torts, and queer law. I don't know what that is, but I'm sure it's impressive. It just means I went to school for a very long time. Can we just start with, with you're an academic focused on medieval England. Like, what, what do you focus on? Like, are you talking about literature or the, the history of it? That's a good question. I think medievalists in general, um, certainly me, um, one of the things that appeals about medieval studies is no matter what corner of medieval studies you engage, well, it gives you the excuse to study a whole lot of things. My particular focus, I was in an English department. So my particular focus was literature. But literature, once you go back to the 12th, 13th, 14th, 15th centuries, encompasses, for instance, books of religious instruction that compile stuff from all over the continent in three languages and you need to understand history and you need to understand the movement of people through the world and the development of language and philosophy and it's endless it's it's a very good field for someone who likes to spend a lot of time digging through old paper wow that sounds like a lot so it's not enough that you went and got a law degree but you, you're also an academic on this very complicated subject. So I'm, I'm going to just go out on a limb here and say you really like using your brain. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I like, I like reading. I like reading and I like thinking about words. That's what I like doing, yes. So it's not enough that you do all of that. You're also an editor of LGBT fiction for Bold Strokes Books. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I've been an editor through everything. I was an editor first. And editing is the thread that has defined everything that I've done. How did you end up editing? Do you have like a month? (laughs) Um, I didn't. Well, I have been editing my entire professional career. When I was an undergraduate, I was offered and accepted an internship at a publishing house called Farrar, Strauss, and Giroux, which now is part of a huge conglomerate. But at the time, it was an independent publishing house. And I was offered an internship in Books for Young Readers at this publishing house. And I was 19 years old, and it was, it was a great honor to be offered this. And it kind of came out of the blue. And I said, yes. I spent a year basically working in Books for Young Readers at Farrar, Strauss, and Giroux, where I worked with the editor-in-chief there. It was a very small department. I worked with the editor-in-chief, a man at that time named Stephen Roxburgh, and who was Madeleine Langle's editor. That was, people, people know A Wrinkle in Time. He was her editor. And I learned how to edit from him. I sort of had endless conversations with him about how editing works and what the relationship between the editor and the author is and what the responsibility of the editor is. And I've always loved books. I mean, right, that's where it starts. I've always been a reader. I've always loved books. 
And now I got to be on the inside of how stories work and how you work with an author and what the editor's role is. And after that, I worked on a PhD in English and I worked on one of the things that I did professionally was edit medieval texts, which, you know, the author is long dead, but you're trying to figure out, you're trying to understand it from the words on the page to make sense of it, but to make sense of it within a medieval context. And again, I, I had the privilege of being trained um, my doctoral supervisor was a trained editor. He'd been doing this his whole life. And so I, I started working on that. And while I was in grad school, I became friends with, there, were, there was a, an MFA program within the English department that I was in. And I was friends with a lot of novelists. And they would give me their work. And they would say, hey, you know, they're work in progress. And I mean, this was, this was before internet fiction. So it was before the concept of a beta reader. But they would ask me to read their stuff, or sometimes I would beg them to let me read their stuff. And I really liked working on contemporary stuff. And I found Scully Slash. While, also, while I was in graduate school, I found... Scully Slash online. I don't know if you're familiar with Scully Slash. Um, Scully Slash was a genre of fan fiction that imagined Dana Scully of the X-Files as a lesbian. And I found, I found this genre of fan fiction and I started consuming all of it and I discovered Radcliffe mm. and we started corresponding. And I started commenting on her stories. It escalated from there. Was this before she was published or? Yeah, well, wait, yeah, before she, yeah, before she was published. This was in the Scully Slash, the Scully Slash era. It was, lo it was a long time ago. I'm always fascinated by how many people have entered Les Fick through fan fiction. I had no idea it was this prevalence. Do you mean um, entered it, well, I guess you mean both as readers and as writers. Yep. I was a reader of lesbian fiction before the internet. I didn't come to lesbian fiction through, through the internet, but I did meet Radcliffe through the internet. Okay, so we're here though, um, we got a slightly sidetracked there for a little bit, but we're here today to talk about technology and how it's changed lesbian fiction. All right. So you have quite a passion for this particular subject, so I'm just going to let you go with it. Sure. Well, we're not really sidetracked, right? Because we just, we were just talking about how communities of writing queer fiction arose on the internet. Mm-hmm. So to sort of roll that back a little bit, technology always changes how people interact, right? So 150 years ago, before people had telephones in there, or 100 years ago, before it was routine, 
for people to have telephones in their homes. You basically interacted with the people that you saw face to face every day. And if you didn't interact with people face to face every day, you had no means of interacting with them except through the written word. So the written word has always been the way that people connect. So as we develop the way that the written word travels and spreads, that has a huge impact on human interaction. So the printing press, right, the printing press, which allowed greater dissemination of books, right, it meant that you didn't need a monastery. <laughs> you didn't need a monastery to create a copy of a book because there was a printer who made a hundred of them. That meant that a hundred people could have the book. It could be a hundred people in 30 different countries. And your <clears throat> words went to people in 30 different countries. So now we have the technology of the internet where I'm sitting at 7.11 a.m. Eastern time in the middle of the forest on the top of a mountain and you are in the afternoon on a different continent, right? <laughs> on the other side of the planet, and we're having a conversation. And we're looking at each other. 50 years ago, someone would have said, that's crazy talk, right? That's science fiction. And here we're doing it, and we're talking about lesbian fiction. So the internet has created, in general, not just for queer fiction, but it has created a globalization of communities of interest. Now, for something like queer fiction, where you have many people who, for one reason or another, cannot live their interest in this material out in the open, the internet also creates an opportunity to discover communities of interest in a safe space. In a safe <clears throat> space. I mean, honestly, um, even, even once you had, you know, even once you had mail order books, right? Even when you didn't have to go out to buy a book, when you could order a book through the mail and it came to your house. If you are a queer teen or young adult and you are living at home with your parents and your parents are hostile to you and it's not a safe environment for you to be out, you cannot order books to come into your house. But you can go out onto the internet. You know, you can find a safe space. You can sit in the library and you can go out, right? The, the books are out too. So you can go out to the books and access them. You can go out to the people and access them. It's a means of connection without physically changing your space. So that's, that's sort of the, the larger, the larger queer picture. But in terms of, you know, in, in terms of, in terms of lesbian fiction, um, lesbian fiction has existed for a long time, but what these, what internet communities provided were communities of interest where people could create 
for one another and get immediate feedback and discover shared interest. And that feedback generated more stories and more stories and more stories. Now, I think it would be a mistake to think that that is the beginning of lesbian fiction, but there was certain or certainly a renaissance of lesbian fiction in, you know, starting, let's say, in the mid-90s, right? And into, into the, the 2000s, as, as Rachel Maddow calls them. So that's one really interesting thing. Another really interesting thing, and this is not exclusive, again, most of these, none of these technological advancements are exclusive to lesbian fiction. However, mm. the smaller the audience, the bigger the impact that the technology has, because it allows for the amplification. It allows for the amplification of the community. So the shift from print book to, to ebook, I wouldn't necessarily say shift as the addition of the technology of the ebook the addition of the technology of the audiobook even like let's just take a microcosm of how we how communities how lesbian fiction communities so that's how people consume stories right but mm -hmm. how people talk about stories in the 90s everyone was in, in the 80s everyone was on listservs remember listservs I was a baby in the 80s, so no. Okay, so I remember, <laughs> I remember listservs. I remember listservs. Um, but then you move from listservs and then Yahoo groups, right? Yahoo groups were all the rage. Everything was a Yahoo group, right? You were on 3,000 Yahoo groups. Then there was MySpace. What's interesting now is that there isn't one single platform. I mean, Facebook is really important, but there's Twitter, there's Instagram, there's podcasting. I mean, podcasting. Podcasting is the resurgence of radio culture. Yes. It's the resurgence of radio culture. But what all of this has in common is the on-demand factor. All of it. So the e-books, the audio books. I want it now. I don't want to wait for the post to make it to, you know, for it to arrive. Yes. Sorry. Well, yeah, no, no. Um, <laughs> I, I, and... Both, both the on-demand and the asynchronous factor, right? So if you think about once upon a time, everything was scheduled. And if you missed your radio pro, you know, if you missed your, your, your pro, right? I, I remember my, my grandfather saying it's time for his program. You know, mm. it's time for his program. He had one, one program. Um, <coughs> it's time for his program. Now, it's, it's not just I want it now, but I can schedule things for when it's convenient to me, right? And again, this is, it's all part, it's all part of the globalization. It's all part of the globalization because if people all over the world are enjoying the same technology and enjoying the same culture, and want access to that culture. I think it's fascinating. I mean, you know, people talk about the infiltration of American culture to other countries, but it isn't just leakage in one direction. 
it's not just consumption in one direction. There are apps that I can download and subscription services that I can subscribe to that I can get. I mean, I get, I have the whole BB, I listen to BBC podcasts all mm. the time. That's how I consume my news. I think it's, I think it's very interesting. I think we've created, I think that there is a global community and I think, I think it's interesting. I think it's, I think it is both an opportunity and a responsibility. There needs to be awareness that not everyone lives in a place where it is safe to be queer and out. Look, in a lot of places, things have gotten much better, both on a legal standing and on a practical standing. But in a lot of places and for a lot of people, it is not better. The globalization carries both opportunities for people all over to have access, no matter their particular situation, but it also creates responsibility for those of us who are in safer spaces, not to take a game over attitude and life is awesome <clears throat> for, you know, we are post-queer or, or whatever. Well, that also changes even in countries where you think, okay, cool, you've got the rights now. Uh, I mean, look at what's happening in America. Yes. Well, it's, it's, it's still, it is still quite a lot better here than in than in many other, many other places. And, um, sure, but sure. yeah, but yeah, I mean, but, but there are plenty of places even within the United States where it has never gotten better. And a lot of people for whom it has never gotten, who, who for whom it has never gotten better in terms of technology. So there's, there's the medium, right? There's how we consume books and how we consume stories. And that's always changing. And it's one of the coolest mm. things about, I mean, there's a whole field of study on the technology of the book. And it's, and it goes all the way back, right? It goes all the way back to manuscript culture. And, you know, it's the technology of the book has always, has always been changing. And then there's how technology has affected communities of lesbian fiction. One of the other interesting aspects to that is that we have also moved from electronic communities of lesbian fiction to face-to-face -face communities of lesbian fiction, right? Because we have people who spend a lot of time speaking to each other online, whether face-to-face -face through something like Skype or via email, want to meet right, want, want to meet. And the GC, you have something like the GCLS, you have something like the, the, the LCON, which is coming up in a few weeks, um, mm. which is a European, there are numerous conferences all over the United States and Europe. And it, it's, again, it's not, it's not a one-way ratchet. We see development along a lot of different ways. But another really interesting aspect of the change in technology is how it actually affects stories. Um, if, mm. if, right, so bookish, bookish people are familiar, right? If you, um, a, a typical plot point in a novel 40 years ago, would have been my, my, my car breaks down and 
I'm stuck on a dark road all by my, and now it's like, wait, you know, you have your phone, right? Everyone carries, everyone has a phone in, everyone has a phone in their pocket. Um, mm. You, you've lost, you know, we've lost that plot, point, right? The, um, the overheard answering machine message, right? You get, <laughs> right? Um, who has, I mean, I confess, I have an answering machine uh, on my landline because, because and, and I have this because I live on the top of a mountain in the middle of the forest and cell phone reception is sketchy. So I do need a landline in the case, in the case of emergency. But um, it's fascinating how things like changes in technology enable, affect, affect the changes in plots in stories and what works and what doesn't work. I, I think I think it's fascinating. It's a challenge as an editor. So let's go back for a second to globalization and, and accessibility and what this has done also for the the Blazfer communities. It's given people access to be able to publish their own books. Amazon has, has given the technology to anybody who wants to become a published author, they can just go do it. So what that means is that we can see really awful books being published, but also really great books being published because there's no gatekeepers anymore. There's nobody saying, no, this is terrible. You know, there's no opinions anymore other than the p- opinions of the readers. That, that is true. I'm, well, I'm not, I'm not necessarily convinced that... I, I, I would say that what has changed is that a self-published... Um, that that somebody can independently publish a book and put it into the chain of commerce on Amazon. People have always been right, you know, been writing stories, been writing books, right? Mm. Zine, right. We talk about zine culture, which has actually always been big in the queer world, right? Where you know people got together in a basement and. Um, put together a a magazine which they mimeographed or photocopied and stapled stapled together and mailed to subscribers. This has always been done. The difference is that because of ebook technology and because Amazon and because Amazon has gotten behind it, um, there's you can put your book up on it. You can make your own book and put it up on Amazon. You don't have to be in your basement, right? Mm. You don't have to be in your Mm. basement with three of your friends photocopying and stapling and stuffing things into envelopes. Yeah. So yeah, that's, that is absolutely true. There's a free market, right? And the market, Mm. the market decides. And you know, there are books that sell three, three copies or zero copies. As a result, what happens is uh, sites like mine can can rise in popularity because I have access to people from all over the world. Yes, yes, and, and because there there are there's the sense that there are no more gatekeepers. I in essence act like a gatekeeper. I say this is worth reading and spending your money on, and this is well we don't talk about those, but. The technology changes has also affected how we construct the culture and who we believe and who we listen to. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
I think that's true. I think that's true. I think, um, but again, there have always, there have always been reviewers. Yeah. But the same way, the same way that the globalization and the democratization, let's say, the accessibility of the technology means that someone with an idea and the resourcefulness to have a plan and a project can have access to the marketplace of ideas the way a generation ago, let's say, only something like the New York Times Magazine or the Times or Le Monde, yeah. whatever the whatever the publications, whatever the hard copy publications, the whatever the institutional corporate publications of record, right? And you can also get this, again, it's about channels of distribution. But it's also true, I mean, and, and I see this because in addition to being um, an editorial consultant for Bullstrokes Books, I'm also a marketing consultant. Book bloggers come and go. People decide, I want to be a book blogger, I'm going to review books, and they start doing it, and nine months later, the blog is gone. People come and go. So again, the bar to entry is very low, but sustainability and success and trust, that's something that's earned over time. And it requires a professionalization on the part of, you know, I, I, think, I, I think the doors have been opened to the, the, the bar for entry for professionals has dropped. So it hmm. is, if you are a professional, it's not a lot easier, but it's a little bit easier to get through the door. But hmm. someone who isn't professional in whatever they're doing, whether it's making a book or whether it's being a blogger or being a reviewer or, right, it does matter. So the bar for entry for everyone is lower, but it also, but you still need to be professional in order to actually become trusted and to sort of sustain a level of both access to, to the books and to the authors that, you know, that you want access to and, you know, people to come and check out your website and check out your materials and for people to care what you have to say, you know, so it, it mm. flows, it flows, you know, there are, there are a gazillion, there's a, there's a, there's a ton of material. There's a ton of material out there. There's a huge proliferation of material and there is a huge proliferation of material that is not read and not viewed and that, you know, so yeah, but I, I definitely agree that the change, one of the changes that technology has wrought is it's, it's created platforms that reviewers like you and not, I, I, I don't know if, I, I don't know if you characterize yourself as just a reviewer. Um, you know, you, you're a reviewer on many different, um, on many different platforms. My primary thing with the lesbian reviews, I review stuff. And then I just build a community around that. That's pretty much what I do with 
like you say, the barrier to entry for all of these things is quite low. So, so starting a podcast, I, I had no idea how to start a podcast. I went and did some research and started a podcast. Nobody stopped me. You know what I mean? Nobody stopped me from starting a review site. I was like, okay, I'm going to share fiction I love. That's great. And I did it. But your point is, is so pertinent because we have this overwhelming amount of everything. We have such access to everything. And because it's so easy to start a podcast or so easy to start a review site or so easy to start a whatever, the attention span of your audience is so small that you, you have like a fraction of a second to get them to trust you. And that's, that's the catch to the whole scenario. Yeah, yeah, I think that's right. I think that's right. You know, in the, in the olden days, um, before, <laughs> in the olden days before cable television, right, there were um, like f- four or five functioning TV channels. You know, and if you didn't like what, so if you wanted to watch TV and, you know, you had a choice at any given time of five or six shows. And I remember you were a captive audience and now people have a lot, there's, there's, there's a lot of choice, but there's a lot of choice, but I still think most people, we are human beings and human beings are creatures of habit. And readers are creatures of habit, and we are all creatures of habit, and we want the same thing over and over and over, only different. <laughs> so <laughs> once, um, so it is hard. It is hard to gain attention. I agree because there are so many stimuli. There are so many stimuli coming at you. Um, it's hard to get attention. But once you have people's attention and people's trust, then it becomes a, a, a matter of, in, in, some, in, in some sense, some of the work is done at that point. But in another sense, and this goes to any, this goes from, from the perspective of a platform owner like you who wants to draw people in, it goes to someone who is writing books it goes to someone who is selling books. Once you have your audience and once you have people's trust, on the one hand, you can breathe. But on another hand, then you have to try to understand your audience and what your audience wants, how to both give your audience what they want while expanding the range of what they want. Getting because you also want to get people to go out of their comfort zone. People who read reviews and they read reviews all the time, and now suddenly you're saying, "Well, watch a pod, listen, listen to a podcast." But wait, like that's not how I consume your stuff, right? But you mm-hmm. get people to listen because if no one's listening, no one's going to take the time to sit and talk to you for an hour, right? It's, I mean. Not me, because I'm, I'm not entirely sure why you wanted to talk to me, but um, <laughs> because I, I, am, I, am a, I am a person, but I am not a personality. I think I have ideas, but I'm not sure that the general public is interested specifically in me connected to the ideas. But yeah, so I think, I think, it's, I think it's fascinating. I think every generation... Every iteration of technology brings 
challenges and brings opportunities. I think every iteration of new technology brings people screaming about how um, books are being destroyed, right? We've been hearing that since the printing press. Um, <laughs> we've been hearing that since the printing press, how it's going to, you know, you know, the move from oral to written. Poetry is gone! The epic is dead! Um, but it's 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 opportunity it's opportunity it's opportunity and it's and it's change and there are so many things I I I think the technology the inter the intersection of technology and the word is a fascinating fascinating space. It is the story of the human condition in some very profound ways. I work with authors all over the planet. And, you know, as I said at the beginning, you know, I am sitting here and you are sitting there and we are having a conversation face to face. And we are talking about, we are talking with words, but we are also talking about words. We are enjoying the same books and we have access to the same books and we have shared stories. I think shared stories bring the world together. I think that that's very important. So. I agree with that. Ruth, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for letting me natter on about uh, editing and technology and words. It was a pleasure. You've been listening to the Lesbian Review podcast. I'm Sheena and I was joined today by Ruth Sternglantz. If you enjoy this podcast, then come and talk to us on the Lesbian Talk Show chat group on Facebook. Email us on podcast at thelesbiantalkshow.com or follow us on Twitter at Lesbian Talk Show. You can also join our community of patrons and get exclusive content. Go to patreon.com slash thelesbiantalkshow. The link is in the show notes. And one of the exclusive features that our patrons are going to get is five questions in five minutes with Ruth. And she doesn't know what I'm going to ask her. And it's all very exciting. That's all for this week. Bye. Bye. Stern glance. Stern glance? Stern glance. Speak it in your own accent. That's fine. (laughs) This is the American A that's getting me on this one.